From Rivers Barden Architects, this is Spork in the Road, a podcast featuring conversations with creative individuals about their path, craft, and passions. In this episode, our resident architects Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden visit with Fallon Mihalik, a landscape architect and artist from Houston, Texas. I still feel like an emerging professional. I've been in business for myself for five years, and, you know, I still feel... Um, like I'm still figuring it out, you know? I don't want to ever have it all figured out, but I do feel like I'm like actively going, okay, does this work? Like, what is good about this project? And so maybe sometimes I am a little too self-critical, but I think it's important to reflect on what you're making. Fallon Mihalik is an award-winning landscape architect and artist from Houston, Texas. Joe and Kevin sat down with Fallon to discuss how her childhood influenced her career path, her journey to becoming a landscape architect, and some of her current work. Here's Joe, followed by Fallon. We can start with the, the real basic of just uh, where are you from? I'm from Pensacola, Florida. That's where I grew up. It's in the Florida Panhandle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, one of the most biodiverse places in the whole world. Really? Because, yes. Huh. Because it is at the uh, sort of a climate fault line, you could say. I'm uh, mixing metaphors, mm. but it's um, in between the temperate and sub- subtropical zones. So the woods of the Florida Panhandle. Um, I'm already off on a tangent. The woods That's right. of the Florida no, this is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> have uh, some temperate forest species and some subtropical species. So um, you might be familiar with E.O. Wilson. Yeah, I love him. Yeah. He grew up where I grew up. So he found it. So he wrote Biophilia, yeah. the Biophilia Hypothesis, um, which like plays into my work and is something I think about a lot. Um, but just to circle back to the biodiversity hotspot idea, he founded a like center in the Florida Panhandle, a wow. sort of conservation and educational center. So what do you mean by biophilia? Biophilia is um, the theory that humans have an innate uh, need to be in a natural setting. Um, but also that we have like an innate kind of desire and motivation uh, to spend time with natural things or in the natural environment. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what his book Biophilia is about, which was like, wow. a, you know, a big idea um, when it came out in, I think, 84, 1984. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's Biophilia. And there's a whole branch of, as I'm sure you're both aware, there's a whole branch of biophilic design, uh, which some of it sort of comes into, like, biomimicry but Mm -hmm. in landscape architecture i'm a landscape architect biophilic design uh is a little more centered on a kind of mimicry of experience of -hmm. nature and so i'm not as interested in like the sort of biophilic systematic approach to design because it's like sort of boils things into like checklists about you need water and like um, leaves and like tree canopy and things, you know, because a lot of it just feels very intuitive. So I'm more interested in making like a more transcendental experience because mm. I think that is one of the sort of underlying ideas of biophilia when E.O. Wilson as a biologist and conservationist and a uh, guy who studied ants, 
He, yeah. you know, when he uses words like desire and motivation, I feel like he's talking about something that's more on an emotional plane and not sure. on a mm-hmm. design checklist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are those experiences that um, you're really drawn to uh, in a biophilia um, perspective? Yeah, I, um, I think it can happen in a in a lot of different ways. And I think it can happen on a really big scale, like the way we think about the sublime, where we feel Mm. small in a like really large, like overwhelming, you know, Grand Canyon experience Mm -hmm. or, you know, a huge sea cliff or whatever that's on the larger scale. Mm. But I also think biophilia happens um, when you look at a flower when you're like looking at, you know, the Venetian on a leaf, when you're watching a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those small moments are just as important as like, you know, going hiking in Big Bend or, you know, having like yeah. the full on immersive yeah. nature experience. Cause we can't, we can't, ha- I wish I could, you know, be in a sublime nature <laughs> experience <laughs> like, every day, you know, in a, like fantastically scaled natural environment but but then i wouldn't be like working in an urban context you Mm -hmm. know what i mean so i certainly dip into those big experiences um but i think the everyday like what you can experience in your own garden type Mm. environment is just as meaningful and just as important conceptually um i'm after a state of mind and it's either creating joy or creating wonder and the wonder state of mind is back to the landscape experience and the connection to nature um of course of course both those things can exist in one project i still feel like an emerging professional i've been in business for myself for five years and you know i still feel um like i'm still figuring it out Mm -hmm. you know i don't want to ever have it all figured out but I do feel like I'm like actively going, okay, does this work? Like what is good about this project? And so maybe sometimes I am a little too self-critical, but I think it's important to reflect on what you're making. Absolutely. Right. And so that you can learn from it and you can say, okay, what went right in this project? Well, we got the joy. Okay. (laughs) Check, you know, like, so that you can bring those things forward in your work. How did you get? How did you get from Pensacola to landscape <laughs> architect? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I went um, to undergrad for chemistry and entomology. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I thought I wanted to be a scientist because I grew up outside. I mean, I grew up without television. I spent my childhood climbing trees camping on the barrier island i was like mm-hmm. a nature i call it a full range full uh free range kid <laughs> you know like <laughs> i was that's a free good. range yeah. kid yeah. you know yeah. like, i don't even think that's legal anymore <laughs> oh i don't think it is <laughs> um but so i went to undergrad thinking yeah i'm gonna study science i'm gonna be a scientist and um that's all fascinating, but I think I just sort of got to this time where I was, you know, I imagined myself looking through a microscope for 30 years by myself in a laboratory, and I was like, 
I don't think that's the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to affect the world uh, every day mm-hmm. in a more uh, like hands-on capacity. You know, not to say that science doesn't affect the world. That's not what I mean. But you know, I want to I want to interface with the like environment every day in a more uh, in a more like uh, socially engaged way. I should mm-hmm. say that's the right term. Um, and my last semester in undergrad, I took this awesome class. I was like an urban planning, mm. sustainable development class. And we cool. read this book um, by Timothy Beatley, who now runs an organization called Biophilic Cities. <laughs> mm. um, and it seriously starts with this book. It's called Green Urbanism. And it was all about green roofs and hmm. like, you know, bus rapid transit and mm-hmm. all this city planning type stuff and about bringing nature to cities. So it, mm-hmm. it has a lot of really amazing case studies about European cities and, you know, the forest management of, mm-hmm. uh, by city governments in Europe, all this amazing stuff that I had never been exposed to. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whatever this is, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of thought hmm. that I was going to be an urban planner or maybe an architect with a capital A instead of an L in front of it. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I was like, I want to I wanna work on this, on making the, the built environment better and bringing mm-hmm. nature into people's everyday environments. And I moved to Chicago because huh. I wanted to live in a big city and I wanted to grow and learn and experience things, etc. I was interested in the nonprofit like as a business model in the nonprofit world. So I did um, fundraising hmm. and hmm. I worked in bicycle advocacy. And so anyway, I had just all of these different interests. So it was sort of like an urban planning type interest, but also a nature interest and um, bike advocacy. And I was researching grad school programs and I read, I read something on a landscape architecture like graduate school it was like the program description of like what you study in the landscape architecture program and that was like that was my in Mm. i was like this this describes precisely what i'm trying to do Wow! (laughs) and so i applied to landscape architecture programs but because i didn't have a design background and they wanted to see a portfolio yeah i took about two years worth of um maybe three years worth of continuing education classes at the school of the art institute oh in chicago Uh uh-huh yeah and that's where i learned drawing and painting uh and that became my portfolio and um yeah and i i found my spot at rhode island school of design because it was so art focused and so experience focused um the pedagogy there is like very much design heavy so in landscape architecture sometimes the the grad program can be based in a um like school of forestry or Hmm. a school of urban planning or Mm -hmm. you know and so that matters, I think, in, in landscape architecture. I don't know how it is in, in architecture. Usually architecture is its own sort of standalone mm-hmm. as a discipline. A lot of times landscape is like sort of tucked into something else. Right, right. And at RISD, landscape architecture is actually tucked into the School of Architecture. And so all of our first year of classes are combined with architects. So cool. our first studio, our drawing classes, oh. we all learn fundamentals together, which... I think is like phenomenal um, and has helped me professionally in so many ways. But uh, Hmm. yeah, that's how I, that's how I came, came to it. Being committed enough to uh, 
pursue landscape architecture where you take continuing ed for two years just to build a portfolio you know where do i okay how do i how do i do that it takes this okay i'm i'm on board i'm gonna do that i'm gonna we're gonna build it and then i'm gonna yeah i mean that it um it takes a tremendous amount of perseverance um to to do it i think you have such conviction in your work right now or just hearing you speak about it of wonder and joy um is that something that's evolved over time i'm just thinking of what was that conviction in chicago to bring you to this to this point was it was there the wonder and joy then as it exists now or was it something that you kind of found along the way yeah it's taken me a while to understand um wonder as uh sort of an end game Mm -hmm. right and i started to understand that from reading about the sublime reading Hmm. philosophy of sublime um and biophilia and the biophilia hypothesis to just understand that more Mm -hmm. um oh i missed nature so much when i lived in chicago oh really oh i moved there straight from south florida (laughs) having never seen snow oh you know yeah and like I moved back to the south because I couldn't. I couldn't take all the snow. I couldn't take winter. Mm-hmm. I couldn't take their. It's cold. Be- yes, uh-huh. it's it's really it's really cold. Um, but <laughs> one thing people say about Houston is that they think it's ugly, and I totally disagree. Yeah. I think Houston is actually very beautiful. I think we have a beautiful sky. Oh um, yeah, because we have those no clouds. Kidding. Oh my gosh, right? incredible! They're incredible. The skyscapes here are amazing. Mm-hmm. I think it is a wonderful, wonderful privilege that we have so much greenery year round. I mean, to to be here in January and to like be in a lush garden is so special. So I think Houston is a beautiful place, um, and I definitely experience wonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Even in like you know Montrose or the Heights or oh, yeah. you know downtown, you know places that people think of as highly urbanized. Those are those. That's kind of that that small scale sublime that you talk about. Yeah, totally. So cool. <laughs> In the spring, you're doing something at Rice. In Nooksville. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is a cool project. Yeah. Tell us about that. Okay. Do you know about John Luther Adams, the environmental composer? No. I didn't either until I got invited to participate (laughs) in this project. But uh, John Luther Adams wrote... So he's a minimalist composer. If Uh you're familiar with um, Philip Glass, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. his work. I'm, I'm not like a music scholar, so... I don't know how to like situate him in contemporary practice other than (laughs) saying that John Luther Adams um, makes minimalist works that are usually site specific. So they're intended to be performed um, outside and um, the music of the place becomes part of the piece. Hmm. That's part of the thinking behind the work. (laughs) Inuksuit is the plural form of a word Inukshuk which is an, an, an indigenous uh, landscape wayfinding 
like a cairn. Do you know that word? C A I R N. Yeah, yeah, the, a stack of rocks. A stack rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ooh, someone's here. <laughs> we'll go that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's a wayfinding type yeah. thing, a way of blazing or marking, you know, um, in a landscape that has no other way of doing that, right? Um, well, indigenous people in Arctic regions have been doing that for a long time. Um, and indigenous people in Alaska. That's where John Luther Adams lives. Hmm. So this piece is called a Nooksuit, and um, it's all based on percussion instruments. So hmm. it's flexible as to the number of performers. The minimum number is nine, and the maximum is 99. Wow. So for it's a little bit of a range. <laughs> <laughs> which is cool, because the number of performers determines the scale of the piece hmm. in a way, right? Hmm. Because it's a place-based thing. And um, it is scored or written in what I'd call three phases. And those three phases are associated with a, a movement of the performers. And the performers are in three different groups. So it's not necessarily choreographed, but there's a, an origin point where everyone begins in the center. And then they different groups fan out to the perimeter of the space at and huh. come back in at sort of different moments in time with these three phases and my job uh as the installation artist uh slash land artist for the piece is to define what that space is so i'm defining hmm. the origin point and i'm defining the perimeter and one of my favorite parts is that the audience moves around too yeah i was just gonna ask so how does the audience you're encouraged Interact. to find different listening points. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what uh, John Luther Adams calls them, is listening points, because it sounds different, you know, depending on where you yeah. are hanging out. I almost wondered, like, you're going to have to give instructions to the audience on how to play with the space, because that's really what they need to do, is just kind of shut off their brain and... And explore. And explore it, and what if I go over here? Am I allowed to stand here? You know, can I stand next to the symbol tree? Yeah, I'm so interested in how we can make those instructions self-evident. Right. I really, I know this maybe sounds obvious, but I, I really want people to really fully listen to the piece. And so I feel like as the installation artist doing something that's visual and spatial, you know, I'm making a definition of the space. Um, but really it's about just making the framework for people to listen mm -hmm. and so i do hope people bring you know a blanket to sit on and you know i'm perfectly yeah. okay with someone just laying down in the grass and closing their eyes and just listening or what you know whatever you want to do <laughs> i need to be able to say there are no rules <laughs> i guess don't touch the instruments is like the only rule preferable yeah yeah that's yeah. <laughs> i feel like the most successful land art is about giving permission to explore and I, I last year i went and saw the spiral jetty oh um, i've never seen it in the um robert smithson yeah in the great salt lake and so much of my preconceived ideas about what the thing should be going out there is that you see it as and it is a, you know a symbol but after visiting it i feel like the biggest takeaway was it was this it was almost a permission to walk into the Great Salt Lake and to experience a landscape in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise and it's this clear trail of going 
you know, to a center of, of space and then, you know, breaking the rules and walking in between and going out further. And that if there wasn't that there, I think the bound of the of the shore or of where the water is and that distance in between, that those are kind of these clear boundaries that you somehow don't feel permission to cross. But because there is that piece that goes out there that, you know, you're invited to interact with the landscape in your, in, you know, in your own way. Absolutely. It's a mm. desire line. Yeah. Of sorts. Yeah. Mm. And an invitation. Yeah. 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 That's really cool that you've seen Spiral Jetty. I've never seen it before. There's a lot of land art out West that I would love to see. Amazing land yeah. art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, but it, it, it's so much of that, that thing of permission. Yeah. How do you mm-hmm. subtly give a hint of it's okay to, to explore? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Fallon. Thanks, this Thanks was for a lot me. of fun. It was super fun. For more information on Fallon and her work, visit her website at fallonland.com. That's F A L O N L A N D.com. A special thanks goes out to our guest, Fallon Mihalik, to our interviewers extraordinaire, Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden, and to everyone out there enjoying this season three of Spork on the Road podcast. This episode was written, produced, edited, narrated, and music by Scott Barden. For more information on Rivers Barden Architects, visit riversbarden.com.